Good morning, one and all. Welcome to a new week. Well, I got a poached egg in bed for breakfast yesterday. How about you? was just nothing in my brain. I had a few Bible verses that were standing out, but I didn't know why. I had a whole talk on emotions sitting there waiting, but I just didn't feel like I was meant to talk about that this week. Uh, Mick, my husband, said, don't worry, if nothing comes, don't force it. Okay, I thought, I won't. I don't want this to feel like a chore. Something else that's been bubbling around separately in the last few weeks for me is wanting to write and share a hope story as part of wanting to be more open and less dualistic about things that are dear to my heart right across my life. And as I said, I wrote down three verses this week, uh, each randomly, it seemed, coming into my consciousness but not leaving, kind of like perching on my week's page and just settling in, waiting. Then a penny dropped like a little highlighter pen on how, th- how those verses connected to each other and my own story. And what I realised was that each verse was significant in my own story of hope. And each verse takes a position in a timeline across it. Ah, okay. This week, my podcast reflection is my own hope story. Got it. The first scripture is Numbers 6, verse 24. I grew up in a conservative evangelical church community with migrant origins, tight-knit society, fierce loyalty to God and right living, and the highest honour given to scripture. Sounds almost Jewish, I know, except without the little hats and glass crunching at weddings. Throughout my childhood, I attended two services every Sunday, each ending with the blessing from the pulpit given from Numbers 6, verse 24. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. This benediction I heard a thousand times growing up. To me, the verses heralded an escape from an hour plus of socially bounded reverent quiet, the need to turn inward, the gaze of the authority of the Bible and men in suits and aunties in their colourful dresses, and it signalled the promise of being with friends and eating cake. The friends I loved and the cake was always really good. Of course I completely missed the meaning of Numbers 6. I didn't intend to, just washed over me as a weekly liturgy and as an ending to ritual, an ending to what we do because that's the way life is when it's presented to you as black and white. As the black and white blended and turned grey, I struggled when ritual simplicity got complex, when colours sneaked in over my teenage years and into my 20s. I stood in the church car park and raged at the wealthy cars in there with so much poverty in our world. I felt righteous anger that people thought God would care if I wore trousers to church instead of a dress. If God cared about crap like that, then what hope have we? I felt anger at being muted, unable to speak up because I was a woman. I moved to Melbourne and engaged in urban, inner-city missional forms of church. 
Here the preachers preached with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other to people who hurt and showed it. We sang lament songs written by the marginalised, explored alternative cultural and spiritual expressions of worship and liturgy. Women had a voice and they had guts. The brokenness was palpable and acknowledged, but it lingered and it was socially infused. The colours and experiences were psychedelic and mesmerising, and my hunger for a God who was worth following grew. I went overseas with Mick, my husband, and I came back to Tasmania and went to uni. I wanted to understand the human social condition, but I also really wanted to prove I was worthwhile, that I had something to say and be as a woman. I walked into a decade or more of intense deconstruction and a breaking down of everything that had come before. We left mainstream church and started our own. Church in a pub, without liturgy. Church as a marketplace, with many ideas. Church as hospitality and community and openness, forming our DNA. As I studied, I slowly began to think more like a sociologist, deconstructing and intersecting the social into theories of power, governmentality, agency, structures. My thought world expanded and went into overdrive, but my heart world contracted as information and evidence and data dominated and mystery and spirit got shelved into the I don't quite know what to do with you anymore box. I look back and realise that becoming an academic narrowed the lens of my world in a new, yes, maybe more acceptable, but a new form of black and whiteness. The particular pathology of black and whiteness is not limited to religion. Our academic institutions have followed culture's soulless descent into neoliberal rationalisations of people and place, along with the worst of them. It all felt like internal wilderness by the time I got to my mid-30s. It didn't look so bad on the outside. Family, kids, job, school, friends, church. Tick, tick, tick. But you can only deconstruct for so long before you hollow out most of the content. There's a lot to deconstruct in our society, in our world, in ourselves. Especially now. With no reason to be angry, I just was. A lot. I wanted to contribute. And all I could see was what was broken. I wanted to say something, but I felt like I couldn't speak. I wanted intimate connection with people, but I didn't know where to begin to explain what was going on deep inside. Anxiety was conditioned normal and it ate at me. I hadn't found a God worthwhile following, just a very long and elaborate shopping list of things not worth following. My head was full and stuck and my heart felt empty and sabotaged. I remember deciding one day that I was sick of the bullshit, of trying to live like I believed in something when I had deconstructed it all into a substantive nothing, of feeling imprisoned in my head with nothing to say and fearful all the time. All my deconstructing hadn't built anything lasting or of substance in me. So I spoke to God, not just as an idea, which is what God had become, which is all God can be when you've closed off the possibility that God is real and active in this world. I opened myself to its possibility and said, if you're really there, show me. And if you're not, I just want to get on with it and leave you out of my life. Enter Bible verse number two. I remember reading it shortly after my little chat with God, Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, 
be still and know that I am God. Probably the shortest verse in the whole Bible, like all of seven words, but it completely stopped me in my tracks. The words cut right through my head and pierced my spirit. Be still, Julia. Be still. Stop. Still your mind. Enter my silence. Enter the place where you can let go of the constant busy hum of your own thoughts enough to listen and hear me. And when you do, you will know who I am because I will show you. You will know in a way that surpasses all understanding. Seven simple words I'd read all my life and all of a sudden I ask to see God and they read me. All that deconstructing, years of words and information and data and evidence and a few simple words undo it all to begin a reconstruction. That, I've learned since, is so like God. He meets you exactly where you're at. Being still, sitting in silence with God, has been the hallmark of that reconstruction for me. That is the place I found the God worth following. Not in deconstructed church or academic intersections of society and the human mind, no. Deep knowing is gifted to us by grace through Jesus in our encounter with a living God. As Henry Nouwen says, Solitude is the furnace of transformation, the place of great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle with the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. I feel like the substance of my interior life is being slowly rebuilt from that place of encounter with Jesus. But it hasn't just been a recolouring of my mind or heart or an open door only to a new interior life and relationship with God. It's a whole of life rebuilding of my identity, my worth, my relationships, my voice, my song, my community, my hope. Each of those has its own story within the larger one. No time here. It's strange. I'm still the same me but in small and increasing increments, like an amplified, more hopeful version of me. I still struggle with all the stuff I always have, living in my head, idealism, being controlling, task-oriented, conflict-avoiding, risk-averse, anxious, fearful of what others think, and there's plenty more. But those things are not the point, because my failures don't define me, nor does the failure of the church nor the social failures of our society or culture. My deconstruction does not define me anymore. Jesus' reconstruction of me and becoming the substance of me does. And an encounter with God isn't just the creation of something new. It is also the redemption of the old, of the past and a promise for the future. The third verse that stood out for me this week is one from a prophet from the Old Testament, Jeremiah. And that's one that's been important to me, understanding my place in the narrative of a much bigger story that reaches far before me and stretches far ahead of me into eternity. Jeremiah was speaking to the Israelites who were at a crossroads in their history. And he says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. 
and you will find rest for your souls. My path is an ancient one and it is a future one. It is anchored in the old and its fulfilment is in seeking God's good way. We know from the whole story that God's good ways is a person, Jesus. When you follow the good way, you find rest for your soul, a deep peace that sits outside of circumstance. Like every form of religious or other society, broken was the community in which those thousand benedictions were spoken over me as a child. But the blessing itself is ancient and spoken from the giver of life. And this too, God has redeemed for me. Those words rise up in me now and they no longer represent black and white or a deconstructed religious expression. They represent living colour itself and the fulfilment of my encounter with a God worth following. A God who, if you ask, will turn his face towards you and give you peace. I want to pray. Actually, I want to sing this blessing on you now. Not on my own. That might be slightly painful. This um, particular scripture has become a global expression of blessing to all people and all nations. Of hope for our collective futures. We do have hope. You have hope. Our churches have hope. All our social expressions, our ethnicities, our genders, our generations, our beliefs and our religions, our politics and our policies, they have hope. When we ask for the ancient paths, for the good way, and we walk in it. Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord turn his face toward you and give you
favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon Oh